it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know why every time we start this, I want to sing. I know. Me too. It's always awkward. <laughs> why? <laughs> don't make me sing. Do it. Give us a little tune. Howdy doody. Howdy doody to our phantom. This is a podcast about ghosts. Oh, wow. Sabrina, that was really good. <laughs> That's, I want that as a ringtone. How do I do that? I don't know. We still haven't figured out how to make our intro into a ringtone. So, uh, so many goals for this year. We'll figure it out eventually. Ugh. It's okay. We can't anyway, be perfect about everything. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That is Corinne. Hi. And I am Sabrina. And um, I don't know. What's new in our lives? Well, I sa- I told you I would watch that documentary. <gasps> and then you and I went on a big documentary binge and we watched like three oh, yeah. documentaries in one night. Last breath. Last breath. Wow. Mm-hmm. Nail biter, right? Such a nail biter. And I also, there was that one, do you want to give a recap to the to anyone who didn't listen to the last episode? Yes. Last breath is a documentary on Netflix. And basically there are these people who are scuba divers and they go into like the middle of the ocean and dive really, really deep or they're like taken down basically in submarines that are filled with helium and oxygen to like equalize the air pressure and so they speak in like really high-pitched voices the same way you would view you know suck to helium balloon but they go down to like the bottom of the sea and then are they have to go attend to oil rigs or machines that are like down there Mm -hmm. and it's an extremely dangerous job but so this documentary is about this one incident where it was a very stormy night and like the equipment on the main boat failed and it starts drifting away from the people who were under the ocean and Things go real wrong. Real wrong. Yes. And yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. Your heart is racing. Your Apple watches are telling you to breathe. Breathe. It's hard to watch. So I can only imagine the the feeling of hopelessness being in that situation, whether you're someone who is seeing your lifeline essentially go away from you as the boat drifts away and you're underneath the water or being one of the single people on the boat trying to figure out how the hell you're going to get your your people back. But there was one character in particular. It was (laughs) that- I think I know who you're talking about. Oh my God. He reminded me so much of the guy Alex from Free Solo. Wait, yes. Because he's just so matter of fact. And I'm like, do you have all that much understanding of life and empathy or are you just here until you die? But it, he's also he also acknowledges it a lot. So he'll be like, when I'm at work, I'm at work. I am like work person. And when I'm at home, I'm at home. And they're two different me's. So he like completely disassociates yes. himself 
right. when he's working. He, yeah, he totally compartmentalizes the two sections of himself. And it's freaky yeah. because it's like, you know, family guy who sees other people, sees coworkers, knows about their lives and considers them humans. And then it's the flip side where he's like, I was just there to retrieve a body. I was just there to do my job. I didn't care about anything. I wasn't that upset about anything. It was a thing, not a body. Yeah. And it's like, what? I he Yeah, he freaked me out. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want you <laughs> down there with me. I want someone who's going to have a lot of energy and, and emotion to, to get me out. But I will say what I think there is a benefit to him being there because he's not going to panic. Right. True. Like his personality almost is beneficial for a moment of crisis because he's not going to panic. He's just going to like do what he needs to do to get something done. You're right. I think it's a it's a pro and con. And I guess this is the case with any anyone. The pro is that he's he's not going to panic and he's going to do what he's supposed to do. But the con Mm -hmm. is that he's going to do what he's told to do. He's not going to do what he necessarily emotionally feels, which depending on the situation, sometimes emotion saves you. And mm-hmm. on the other side, sometimes deliberate instruction following saves right. you. Okay. Well, we shouldn't say too much more, but if people have watched it, let's start a discussion on the Facebook page because it is so intense. It's even the way that they filmed it. Like it's, it's such a small story. Yes. And it's so contained, but it is tense. I mean, when they were first going down, before I knew about the storm and all that could go wrong with equipment. I was thinking when they were like, this is a dangerous job. I'm like, of course it is. Giant squid are going to eat you. Like I was thinking (laughs) entirely sea creature based, not anything to do with like man-made equipment and weather. So. Oh my gosh. Now that it's just pretty much solidifies my fear of the ocean. It's the one thing that you just can't control it. It's so scary. So scary. And okay. We watched the other documentary we both watched was Tell Me Who I Am. Mm -hmm. And that was heartbreaking and also so shocking that that is a real story i know i was texting you throughout watching it being like yes i have not finished it but it's worth a watch go watch it but it's about these twins who these twin boys who grew up together and at the age of 18 one of the twins was in this terrible accident that left him physically okay but without any memory of his childhood he he was starting from scratch he did not know anyone he didn't know his mom or his dad but what's crazy is the the second he woke up in the hospital he recognized his twin brother and knew his name and then his mom was like over him and knew his name and then his mom was like over him weeping and he didn't even remember her name or who she was she he he turned to his twin and was like who is she yes so essentially he woke up and the only thing he knew was that he had a twin this was his twin and his twin's name was this but he didn't remember anything from his twins and his childhood up right. to the age of 18 when he woke up from this like coma from this accident mm-hmm. and basically the premise of the documentary is that his twin doesn't necessarily spin a tale but just provides him with the information that he wants his twin to his brother who just woke up with no memory, just provides him with the info he wants him to have. And then his the guy that just has no memory and is trying to piece everything together, he's piecing them together without too much context, and he's not really mm-hmm. asking for more information. So he ends up weaving this really beautiful, normal childhood tale and thinks that that's the way he lived. And his brother just went along with it. And turns out in their 30s, they uncovered something in their family home, which 
made them, made the the guy who had lost his memory realize that his twin had been lying to him. And they had a trauma-filled, abuse-filled childhood. It is disgusting. It is very hard to hear. And And the twin who had not been the accident, I mean, people should watch it, but like the idea of like telling this like idyllic version and he was like, he had this chance to like live a life without the horrors that we got to rewrite his story with his twin because if his twin believed it, he could believe it too. Yeah. Ugh, it's so emotional. It was so, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And the, the story is not only about what happened to them, but about the two of them trying to understand the other. Because the one without memory is like, how could you have left out these pieces of me? Mm-hmm. This is who I am. Tell me who I am. Don't leave it out. Like, you betrayed me. And then the other the other twin is like, why would I ever give you this horrendous memory when you have the ability to go on and live without this trauma and live peacefully and take me yeah. with you and rewrite my own history? If you yeah. don't believe it, I don't Ugh. have to believe it. I'm protecting myself too here. It's, it's like you you believe like whoever's talking, you agree with, which is. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah that was a good one. I have chills right now. <laughs> yeah. Very triggering. Definitely. But highly, highly recommend. We talked about this one as well last episode, but Seaspiracy, I finally watched. I realize it's called Seaspiracy because I think there's another documentary by the same group called like Whalespiracy or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. I know I saw so I on the internet like everyone of- was had the same same thoughts as me where it's just easier to say conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that one was so hard to watch. It is. It is. And it's... I mean, they all were. They were all so hard to watch. They were all hard to watch. Yeah. I think my... I have a few takeaways with... With the sea spiracy. I think yeah. one thing I wished that they had talked about a little bit more was the difference between whaling in general that it, that's illegal or, or I guess, not monitored to the point where it should be versus more sustainable living where it's like within certain people's cultures and practices. Like if you look at like the Eskimo cultures, mm-hmm. one whale feeds how many people, but this is not what this documentary is trying to show. It's trying to show like the right. illegal harvesting and hunting of all of these sea creatures for either sport or basically like minimum use of like a certain part of their body. And it's just devastating the whole oceans. And one thing that was hard for me to watch was when they were when they were they were first talking about like pirates and everyone's fear of all of these you know like Somali pirates and all these all these uh, like Northern African people who were coming out, but then they were showing how much devastation happened to overfishing in their areas and how starving the people were, and they were yeah. going out and risking their lives in these boats, in miles tiny boats, yes, yeah. canoes like little like canoes, yeah, so easy to flip over, no life preservers, just asking for food, trying to get fish because they were all driven out, and it reminded me not to not to bring up a a cartoon but it reminded me of Moana you know like when she used to go on this dangerous journey because the fish have dried up and they have to go beyond what's safe beyond what's yeah. normal because something has happened that has altered the natural state of things i was also so shocked by and and this is not to say that like us replacing plastic saws is wrong because i, I think that's a good first step but i was shocked by the fact that these companies that are enforcing like, oh, the, the plastic and, and like human waste is... Yeah, save the turtles, don't use straws. Save the turtles, all the stuff, are funded by companies that are supporting the fishing. And the 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 most of the plastic that's in the ocean right now comes from like fishing nets and, and 
industrial size plastic fish equipment. Yeah. But no one's talking about it because these companies are funded by mm-hmm. the, the fishing companies. It was something like 0.002% of, of what we're focused on, which is like Q-tips and, and straws, right. is what is actually making up all of this pollution, this plastic waste in the ocean. And it was like 46% of the majority is fishing equipment. Right. Shook. It made me very, very grateful that my mother raised me vegetarian. I know. Well, yeah, because even when they were going through and showing all of those seals of like, you know, when you get like the blue fin or whatever. Whale safe. Whale yeah. safe. It doesn't. It doesn't or dolphin mean, safe. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a lie. Yeah. The guy was like, we can almost always guarantee. And then he just completely went against. He was being hypocritical. He said that he'd be like, well, we can't actually guarantee but we can almost always guarantee. And it's like, wait a second. What? Yeah. It didn't make any sense. You're so contradictory. It, Yeah. There's just, it was extremely frustrating. And it, it made me panic because it made, because essentially if you watch the documentary, you should watch the documentary. But if you watch the documentary, you're going to walk away being like, there's, they didn't provide any real solutions. The whole time they were asking for solutions, like what should we be doing? But there, it's just so incredibly out of, out of control yeah. that it's like, holy crap, where do we start? What do we do? Is this even semi-reversible at this point? That's what's so crazy about it is like he sought out this on this journey to try to find answers and then just ended up going and finding so much more terror yeah. and horror in this industry. He just wanted to learn about whales and he came out with yeah. so much more. Oh, documentaries are amazing. Highly recommend all of these to you. I and know. if you guys have recommendations for us, please tell us. Yeah, let us know because we're in a documentary phase right now in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Into it. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. All right. We have a topic, a topic I love that is near and dear to my heart because I studied abroad there. But Anne Louise uh, asked us to cover stories from New Zealand. Yeah, because if you didn't know, uh, there are tiers on Patreon where you can pick a topic that we will research for our regular episodes. So New Zealand, which I don't know that we've talked about on this podcast before. I think I've done, I think I did a, was St. James Theater or something like that was in Oh, maybe New Zealand. I think I have talked about New Zealand okay. once or twice. It's few and far between on this podcast. So it was exciting to look into it. A small country, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Get to hang out with the Kiwis and, and Maori people for a moment. Yeah. And talk ghost stories. So Eek! I'm excited. Eek! <laughs> Eek! Okay. I'm going to go first. All right. Uh, I decided to cover the Waitomo Caves Hotel. And before going into these hauntings, I just need to tell you, and I probably told you after I came back from abroad, but now I want to tell everybody else. Uh, classic. When you come back and you're like, ah, la, 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 la. But <laughs> one of the coolest things I've ever done in my entire life was not at the Waitomo Caves Hotel, but right next to it. The Waitomo Glowworm Caves Ugh. is literally the coolest experience 
I've pretty much ever had. Essentially, there are all of these caves. It's this big cave system in this area, Waitomo. And you can go in, you can take tours. So they're guided tours and there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of different options. So if you're like, I want to go ziplining, you can. If you want to go blackwater rafting with tubes, which is what I did, you can. You can also do like a dry walking path. There's a bunch of different choices, but there's essentially these two levels and it's, you go like 80 meters below ground. At least I did with the the blackwater rafting tube. And you float slash walk through these freezing cold waters in your wetsuit with your helmet and your flashlight, like on your hard hat helmet. So cool. It is literally amazing. It's scary at some points because right. you're like floating through this water and they tell you not to uh, dangle your toes or fingers because there are eels underneath. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a little bit of scariness involved. Yeah. And then you really have to, if you choose that option, I would say like it's only for someone who can be a little bit physically active and can like crouch down and get through like weird, broken, jagged rock. So cool. But essentially for three hours, we were in these tubes, either floating down this river or walking along the cave. And you look up and there's glowworms, which glowworms are essentially, well, these types are like bioluminescent larvae, which everyone's like, glowworms are so beautiful because it looks like a starry sky. Uh But they do tell you not to open your mouth, not to be like, whoa, because they're they're glowing, but they're attached from their head, which means their butt is facing you. And all of the drips that you think are water is essentially them pooping on you. No, (laughs) So they're like, don't open your mouth. You're going to get glowworm poop in your mouth. Okay, but what if I, similar to Spider-Man, get glowworm turn, poop in me turn and I turn into, into, a, into a glowing oh. superhuman? <laughs> a giant glowworm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can try. I don't think there's any no. harm in eating the poop. It's just a little gross I don't know to think I about. Want to. Yeah. yeah. But how cool. People should just look up pictures because I'm not doing it justice talking about it, but it's like it should be one of the seven wonders of the world. It is so beautiful. And another cool thing is that a lot of the uh, tour guides are actually direct descendants of the, of the Maori people or, or of the chief that had originally found the cave. So you get a lot of the history lessons, a lot of the like lore and, and uh, Maori people legends with it. So it was awesome. You're making me want to travel so bad right now. I need to go look and like find a picture of me doing it and post it. I do. I do remember seeing you post all those pictures when you were there. And I was like, this looks like the coolest, most adventure filled trip ever. Oh, God, I would go back in a heartbeat. I was there for four and a half or five weeks and it was not enough time. I needed a year so in New cool. Zealand. Ugh, it was amazing. Anyway. OK, so while I was at the Waitomo Glowworm Caves, there's a hotel right next to it that was built. Uh, the Waitomo Caves Hotel. It is a New Zealand Victorian home. It was originally built back in 1901, and it was originally called the Waitomo House. And it was built by Tinara Aparea and his wife after Tane had found the cave. And then he began to guide groups through the cave for for tourism, essentially. And so he and his wife were like, yeah, what a great gig. Let's get this started. They built the hotel so people could stay. And then four years later, the Tourist and Health Resorts Department purchased this home. They redesigned it. Then they called it the Government Hostel. And then... Then again in the 1920s, so it had a lot of changes in, in facelifts um, pretty early on. But then again in the 1920s, it's redone. It's expanded upon. So they have a whole uh, extra wing there because there's so many 
tourists. They're, they need to accommodate the increasing number of tourists. Then again, it changes ownership in the 1980s. So the building has gone through a lot, changed names, m- multiple uh, redesigns and expansions, additions. Um, but what's most important is not actually the building, but the land that it's on. Spooky. Spooky. So the hotel is built up on this higher point on the land, on limestone rock. So surrounding the land are these, like I said before, these natural caves that have these underground streams, hence the Waitomo Glowworm Cave Tour. Uh, But many of these caves are actually considered sacred by the Maori people, the native people of New Zealand. And the caves area is also said to be home to Tanifa, which are these creatures from Maori folklore who are like essentially part guardian, part monster in appearance, but they live deep in these pools and these rivers. They like lurk in the caves and reside in the sea where these dangerous currents are. And depending on the region and, and local Maori people beliefs, these creatures either protect you from dangers or, or essentially like you might have to pay your respects to them because maybe depending on where you are, they're not always protectors. But a lot of people do think of them as these guardians and that they'll save you from drowning. They'll save you from serious injuries when you're down in these streams and in these caves. Uh, And some actually say that those who in their life have had a really strong relationship with Tanifa will, after their passing, become Tanifa. So it's like they, they, I guess, graduate into this being. Well, that makes sense. Cause I feel like I'm very drawn to Leia and cats that like, I think <laughs> I will eventually be reincarnated as one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the Maori people, they leave offerings when passing by the caves, hoping to thank or essentially appease the local Tanifa. And the Tanifa are also described as in a lot of the descriptions I saw, they were lizard-like, they were snake-like. And Ooh. so I was thinking, okay, if we take a moment away from mythology, if we if we step away from it, if we don't think at all about like mythology, cryptozoology, or the possibility of paranormal being at play here. What? That is not what we do here, Corinne. I know. I know. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, the description is a lot like the long-finned eel, which mm. is in the waters there. And so I'm like, Here's here's where I'm going to get back to paranormal. Okay, thank you. I'm wondering if the Tanifa just take on the likeness of these oh. eels so that you assume that they're these regular old eels and you don't try to capture them. You leave them alone because that's excellent camouflage. <laughs> so I think it's possible. They're shape-shifting, but they're, their regular bodies look like eels. I believe it. I'm on board. Additionally, above land here and in a lot of New Zealand – the forest and the mountaintops above these caves, there are these creatures called patupaharehe who are pale-skinned creatures that lure people to their doom by oh. singing and playing flute music. So they're sirens. Like, like sirens, they're, yeah. They're mermaids, but on land. <laughs> okay. And then also I think it's important to note, too, that the Maori people, before these caves were used for tourism, Caves in general are historically a big part of Maori culture because they serve as burial grounds. And this cave right here, Mm. the Waitomo Caves, were indeed used as Maori burial grounds. But then beneath the hotel is running water and these underground streams. And this is said to attract ghosts. So they think one large reason for the hotel being haunted is that these spirits are, are here because of the water. 
But well, we did talk about it's what the buildings are built upon, right? Oftentimes it is, yes. But I would argue that yes, maybe the running water has something to do with it. It's an attractive thing to spirits, but some of the spirits were already here, water or no water, or they were going to be here because of what has happened on the land. So back in 1350, way back then, there were two massive battles. The battles were between the Kangitanga, which was the Maori King movement, and the British army. And it was a bad, I mean, the two battles. They were bad, they were bloody, and the mm. British were actually using the land to their advantage. They were they were making these forts up on the hills so that they would have the upper hand and use the slopes to their advantage when oh, attacking these other soldiers from from the the native groups. And so this site where the hotel sits is actually the site where the British fort once sat, like the exact location Whoa. from this bloody battle. Okay, that's for sure going to stir of up some course. activity. Of course. But we had a little Romeo and Juliet moment during that time because through the battle and through the bloodshed, history paused for a moment for this legend, the legend of the Maori princess from the Kingitanga, who was the daughter of a high-ranking chief, to then develop feelings for this British soldier. And these feelings were returned. They both were really vibing with each other. They really liked each other, even though they were, you know, forbidden love. Their two groups were battling. Like the story of Pocahontas. I, yes. Uh, yes. The Disney version. Yes. Maybe not the real version. Yes, yeah, you're right, yes. Yeah, but the couple's love story, as much as we're like, oh my gosh, how great my heart is warmed by this moment, the couple's love story ended far too many chapters too soon when one evening this princess was making her way up to the fort for some snuggling and whatnot Mm. when another soldier, a British soldier, mistook her for a warrior and he shot her and she died immediately. And her spirit is said to haunt the Victorian wing of the hotel, the hotel that now stands right where that fort was, where she had fallen in love. And this specific wing, the Victorian wing, is where the honeymoon suite is. So while she prefers to stay in this wing, she really does venture around the hotel. She is reported to make her way up to the attic and her heartbroken moans can be heard from the rooms below the attic. So if you go on like TripAdvisor, if you go on any blogs, there's a lot of reports of people being like, yeah, I heard someone crying and moaning above me and there's oh. there are no rooms above me. And it's her. It's it is the- interesting that she chooses to stay in the honey, like near the honeymoon suite, because that makes me believe that she just like loves love so much. She loves love. I agree with you. I'm like, does she love love or is it just ironic placement? Maybe that was exactly where her her love, the soldier had been staying in his own like barracks or whatever. Oh, interesting. That would be a weird placement than than that exact spot is where the hunt. That almost is like tragic because then she's forced to face (laughs) love. Like, like, heartbreaking. She does. She roams around though. So, you know, I think that's like a, a preferred, a favorited area. And maybe she just is, yeah, attracted to seeing other people in love and and can reminisce a little bit about the moment that she found her love. Right. But there are a few other haunted rooms in this hotel. Room 14 is one of them. And this one's actually really sad. This is pretty dark. So just a a warning for everybody. But one evening there was a man who was staying at this hotel and he said that he felt the spirit of this Maori princess go through him. And it really 
rattled him. It really disturbed him when that happened. And he went down and he was telling all of these other people who were staying at the hotel, like passing by him and, and dining and whatnot about what happened to him. And everyone's like, oh man, yeah, that's weird. And he's just, he's just can't get over it. Mm -hmm. And later that evening, he goes back to his room and he completed suicide. Oh no. And so he now wanders the corridors. But my question is, does he do it with the princess? Like, is there in spirit form? Like, are they at all in communication or are they two spirits, just two ships passing in the night? So sad either way. I know. It's horrible. And what's really weird about this room, too, is that this man, he died by hanging, but the bath in this room will is said to drip blood from time to time. Oh, whoa. Which is very creepy. So I would, I'd never go back into that room if I saw that. It's so disturbing. And I'm like, okay, is this the princess? Is this the man? Is this something else? Like, that's up for debate because... Well, if there was war there, you know, I feel like... I don't know. But this, I I felt like after reading what happened to this man, it felt like the princess was somewhat malicious in a way, or or Mm -hmm. that's what so many of these reports were implying with this particular story. But I don't think that it's all that malicious because in room... 12, which is adjacent to room 14, the princess is said to float through and she flickers the lights in the bathroom and she pulls the sheets off guests sleeping in the bed, which yes, you're like, okay, well, she pulls off sheets off of people like that's so (laughs) scary. That doesn't sound nice at all, Corinne. What the hell are you saying? But what she does after, I think, makes me think she means no harm. What does she do? For she tickles your toes. Oh, (laughs) she tickles your toes. She's just very loving and like motherly. Right. She's just, she wants interaction. She wants these silly moments. She wants this comfort. She doesn't get it. Yeah. And so she's just trying to be a little playful and tickle your toes. And she can't help if the lights flicker when she walks by. The lights can't handle her beauty. She has so much energy. She can't even control it. It's as if like I became a glowworm superhero. I wouldn't be able to control my power. (laughs) Sabrina the glowworm. (laughs) Our second children's book after Baby Witch. And then in room 12A, this is the only room that has a letter after it because essentially it's just room 13 and they wanted to avoid (laughs) saying room 13. 12A seems like so much more work than just like skipping over the number 13. I know. 12 little A. It's like you're drawing so much more attention to it. You're right. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. So in room 12A, (laughs) there is a plethora of paranormal activity. Objects will move around on their own those who have dropped things. There was like one report essentially of someone having dropped baby powder, like talcum powder all over the floor and footprints appeared in the the spilled powder, which oh. I'm like, that is so paranormal activity. That is a scene from that movie. And it's it, spooky. I still remember it. So scary. So while the hotel is a hot spot for spirits, room 25 is a uh, more of the, I guess, eye of the storm hmm. of all of the paranormal happenings, but specifically for hotel staff, because most of the activity in the hotel is like, you know, it's partially okay. Some of it can be a little bit scary, but it's not, you're not going to be harmed for the most part. Okay. But in room 25, people who go in there and it's apparently, a, I think it's a staff room because everyone was talking about how the staff is afraid to go in there. But in room oh. 25, people are filled with these feelings of dread. They hear screams. Oh, no. There's moving objects. And people actually believe that it's a... Fo- this is what's so messed up. 
it's not like it's this disgruntled spirit from centuries ago who doesn't know mm-hmm. what's happening or this this uh i don't know like entity people believe that it's a former staff member <laughs> Who's doing all of this? Who's just still trying to run the wing and do things their way? Oh. And it's just spooking all of the other hotel employees. I mean, maybe they had a really bad experience while working there and they're not spooking them. They're like getting revenge. Maybe. Or maybe they should have taken a leadership course in their life and they just <laughs> never had the chance and they're still running the ship like they did before. Mm, mm-hmm. But I think it's, I mean, it's sad that everyone is so scared of the place, but I think it's hysterical that it's. <laughs> It's a former employee. employee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This one's sad. There's also a spirit of a little boy who's there. He is said to have been the son of a maid who worked on the property. And one night, because the kids weren't allowed to be on the property, one night his mom like snuck him in. She snuck him out through the back into the house and or into the hotel. And it was Mm -hmm. the 1930s. And he was like, woo, it's the night. He can walk around freely. He's not going to be seen. So he's skipping through the kitchen. And as little kids do, they can be clumsy. He knocks into a pot of boiling water (gasps) and the boiling water coats him. It covers him. And his injuries are so bad that it takes his life. So he dies because of this. I can't imagine a worse way to go. That is so tragic. So painful. Yeah. It's, and it's also when it's water, it feels like, feels like it's a slow burn, you know, like you're, you're ill and infected. For a long time. So, so, so sad. A very tragic death. So his spirit is still there. And the hotel employees, they nicknamed him Daniel. And they said that they can hear him giggling and they can hear him skipping through the halls. So he seems like he's generally happy. And he's referred to as the ghost of Cat Alley. Because Cat Alley is what they had actually called the grouping of of small rooms that were along this one corridor where all of the hotel staff had lived. But I was like, ooh, ghost cats, but no. No. Just this cluster of smaller rooms. Still um, cat in the name, so I'm into it. Yes. But Daniel, while while the staff report him to be giggling and skipping and having a good time, and he doesn't mean any harm, I do feel a little bit bad for him, not mm-hmm. only because of what happened to cause his death, but because children who visit the hotel often complain about the weird boy who's following oh. them around. So he just wants a friend. He just wants to play. He just wants to play and he's shy. He doesn't know how to connect. He's just following people around, hoping that they'll want to play with him. And I mean, that was the ghost that I grew up with. My brother would wake up all the time saying, tell the little boy, I don't want to play. Yeah. It's, it's well-intentioned. Yes. It's, yeah. Oh, my heart. I can't do it. Poor Daniel. <laughs> Hurts me. But this hotel is undoubtedly haunted. So whether it be a report from a hotel guest or a paranormal investigator, because there are plenty of those who go through, there's just so much that happens at this hotel and the surrounding area. There are orbs and mist that are caught on camera all over the property, Ooh. like all the way from the driveway into if someone's taking a picture inside their room of the wardrobe and there's an orb inside mm. of the wardrobe like there's Ooh, i want to look up all evps there's photos you can totally look it up google image that there's a lot and there's been plenty of investigations so i think there's a lot of uh photo evidence out there so fun. but people report these sinking feelings cold spots feeling as though someone's just walked through them tubs not only ooze blood but there have been reports of tub water remaining boiling hot. Oh, so gosh. much so that even if you add like half a tub of cold water, it's still 
boiling hot and you cannot touch it. You cannot get in it. Visitors have heard what sounds like a bird flying right next to their head, like the the flutter of the wings. Uh, They've heard laughter, footsteps, a maid's trolley car going by, crying, moaning, screams, and the occasional AVP is captured. Shadows are seen running down the hall, across the door frame, and also lurking around corners on the stairs. So I don't know who those spirits are, but yeah, right? it's a little creepy. Objects will move around, lights will flicker, spirits play tricks on the living. And while some of it, it seems to be harmless, others say that the spirits, certain spirits, feel predatory. Oh. And there are just so many paranormal experiences to be had at the Wysomo Caves Hotel and the surrounding area. And I encourage anyone who is curious enough to go, to go, because you will love the land of New Zealand and learning about the native Māori people. It's just, for me, it was an unforgettable experience. And the Waitomo Glowworm Caves were surreal. So But cool. I do want to leave you with this one interesting tidbit about the property before I close this chapter on the Waitomo Caves Hotel. Guillermo del Toro. Know him. He stayed, (laughs) know him. He stayed at this hotel overnight when he had originally been set to direct The Hobbit. And he had asked the hotel, which was closed at the time, if he could stay because he loves spooky things. And he was like, okay, what better (laughs) place to to stay at than this place, which is spooky, which I like, and then simultaneously experience New Zealand. Perfect. So they agreed. They let him spend a couple nights there. And Del Toro said, To have that much power. That's so cool. I know. <laughs> I am the director of The Hobbit. Let me stay in your hotel all by myself. Yeah. Wow. I would definitely not stay alone. I would invite people because that's just the shining waiting to happen. Which we can stay together, which it looks like. I just looked this up. It looks mm-hmm. very similar to the uh, Stanley Hotel, which inspired The Shining. It's in- Yeah. It's interesting because it's it's gone through like an art deco phase. It's also Victorian. There's a lot of different kind of like mm-hmm. a, a Mod Podge. But the coloring and just like the general aesthetic very much has the Stanley similar. Stanley yeah. Hotel vibes. So Del Toro said that he's, in his life, has only encountered two ghosts ever. Even though he loves mm-hmm. the paranormal, he's only had two experiences ever in his life. And one of these encounters happened here at the Waitomo Caves Hotel. So he said that he heard a horrible murder being committed in his room. What? And it was so terrifying. He said he couldn't sleep at all. And in the morning, his body was still pumping with adrenaline. He was reacting to this sheer fear of hearing what sounded like someone being murdered in his room at night. I'm in awe. Awe, yes. And the fear stuck with him for so long. These blood-curdling screams were haunting him. And he actually, they haunted him so much that he actually replicated it in Crimson Peak. So if you've ever seen the movie, which admittedly I've not. I have not either. But I'm definitely going to watch it now. I'll probably watch it after we finish recording. Yeah. Uh, But there's a scene where you hear a murder in a bathtub. And this scene was put in by Del Toro. It created to replicate that moment in New Zealand when he was tormented by the spirits at Waitomo Caves Hotel. That is shocking. Right. It is actually, that story is also very reminiscent of Stephen King's experience at the Stanley, which inspired him to write The Shining. You're right. You're totally right. So I don't know. Maybe they're like twin hotels in terms of energy. Sister hotels. (gasps) I mean, they could be. Sister wives. I'm curious about like where on the world, if you could do a little pinpoint 
where on the world they would be. Like if they sync up and what, you know how everyone's Ooh, like, well, ley like, lines. Are they or, on ley lines? Yeah. Yeah. Are they on ley lines or are they like exactly on the opposite side or like a quarter <laughs> of the way across? Where, where are they? Someone who This is has where that we start a conspiracy. <laughs> Do we ever not have a conspiracy? It's true. But it's always fun to have a new one. I saw something on, it was like a meme on Instagram or maybe it was on our Facebook group. But someone was like, I don't understand why conspiracy theories can't be taken seriously when we literally teach in school Darwin's theory of evolution. (laughs) Theories are theories. And I was like, yes, but I guess let's get into a dangerous, (laughs) dangerous little... uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but you could spiral. Yeah, as we do. Right. Sometimes it's enjoyable to spiral. I don't regret it. Not, Not one, one bit. bit. Okay, well, I want so badly to travel. I've I've always wanted to go to New Zealand, um, so I'm definitely I'll on go my with bucket you. list. Yeah, go with I me. didn't even get to go to the South Island when I was there, so I'm uh, ugh, itching to go back. So much exploration to do. But this place sounds so cool. And I don't know, like the, the paranormal stuff, maybe it's because it reminds me so much of the Stanley that I feel like I can I can handle it and it doesn't feel too threatening or ominous. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like it feels more of like an experience to go and be there with the ghosts. Yeah, because it also feels like you're going to have an experience because of yeah. the short stays that people have and the amount of activity that they experience, it kind of feels... It feels like, you know, when you go through the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney and it stops and you get to watch all of the ghosts like dance in the ballroom. It kind of feels like it feels like that. Like you're just you're moving through this ride and it's just going to continue as it always does. Like these ghosts are going to do what they do and you're just there. And sometimes you get in the way and sometimes they walk right through you. Yeah. I like the Maori princess, though. Maybe you have some connection to her. Maybe if I. If I perish, I'll go join her and tickle people's feet. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I'll tickle her feet. Maybe that's all she wants. Maybe she likes that. And she's just waiting for someone to finally tickle her feet and then she can cross over. The way that you were saying it did make me think of like, maybe it's something that her parents or her family did to her as a kid. So she's like, yeah, she's just doing it again. I also imagine she was probably shockingly young. Oh, I'm sure. Probably like 13 years old, but just... Because people were dying so much earlier back then. Right. And yeah, th- marriages, unions, everything mm-hmm. was a little different. Yeah. My mom sent me a picture of her when she was like 14 years old. And she had like a baby face, but she looked so much older. And she goes, well, yeah, I was at bars like hooking up with 30-year-olds at that point. What? I was like, mother. Oh, wait, where did she grow up? Pennsylvania. She was a bad kid. She, my my grandma had to send her to a Catholic school because she was very misbehaved <laughs> in her other school. I think it was your mom. I think it was just your mom and she was she was rebellious. Very she was a rebellious child. Very, very. The things that I've heard from her mouth in the years that like I've become an adult, it is so shocking because I'm like, Mom, you found a small little bag of weed in my jeans when I was in high school that wasn't even mine. And truly, it wasn't mine. And I was grounded for an entire month. Wow. Yeah. And yet, she, when she was even younger, she was a wild child. The things that she was doing, I can't even say on this podcast. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. while your mom was doing that, my mom was still rocking a bowl cut. So <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't really a bowl cut. It was like a little boy. Like Bob. Little boy cut 
that's how all of my uh, aunts and uncle had their haircut. It was the one haircut. They all got the same. Yeah. They're matching. Oh. My mom always points it out in every photo. She's like, oh, I hated that haircut. Oh, I think it's so, so cute. It's like a little pixie cut. It reminds me of in uh, Pen15 when in the very <laughs> first episode, her mom puts the bowl on top of her head and literally gives Maya. her a bowl cut. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God. Pen15. <laughs> I, I need to keep watching that. The most recent season, I only got halfway through because it was so... It just felt so accurate to my middle school it's experience so that I was on. re-experiencing the trauma of it. <laughs> and I, I couldn't, I had to, I had to stop because I was like, this is unearthing things that I, I shoved deep uh, down and tried to forget. Well, I'm telling you, season two really hits the heart. And there's a lot of theater stuff in it, which you'll also connect to a ton. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm a good way through it. I, I feel like I'm picking up on the themes. I just need to battle emotionally <laughs> and get over it and watch okay. it. Okay. Okay. Heading to New Zealand and we're gonna get scared. Wow, this is a sing-songy episode. This is the, what are they called for? It's like, it's the musical, but you get to sing along. The Sing-along. It's just literally <laughs> called a sing-along. <laughs> oh my God, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> um. Okay, well, this won't have you singing, but it might have you squealing or screaming. Because lying at the head of Littleton Harbor, swallowed by the hills, is Quail Island. And it is a stunning piece of land in New Zealand. There are sandy beaches, grassy knolls, stunning vistas, preserved wildlife. And to top it all off, the cherry on top, a deadly curse. Oh! Anyone who has anything to do with this island has died tragically not long afterwards. The only exception being people who visit it nowadays and tourists seem to be safe from the curse. But people who have tried to live here or use the land for something specific have befallen the curse. Even the quail bird, which the island was named after, is now extinct. So as you mull on that... I will share some geographical history about Quail Island. Okay. It is the product of several volcanic eruptions from the now also extinct Banks Peninsula volcano. The island is only 200 acres and its highest point of elevation is 282 feet. And it's the perfect size to explore in a day. And there's so much to explore. Uh, Because of its history, Quail Island is sometimes called the weirdest island in New Zealand and also the most cursed island in New Zealand. Uh, Before it was Quail Island, the Maori natives called the island Otamahua, the place where children collect sea eggs, because the tribes had been using the island as a place to harvest seabird eggs. And they also were harvesting shellfish and flax, and for years they would travel back and forth between their home on the mainland to the island to harvest the land. But... Even as fruitful as this harvest on the island was, the tribes avoided living there and they never permanently settled on the island, which makes me wonder Hmm. if, as we've heard in the past of like other islands where the local tribes kind of know that there's a curse. And Mm -hmm. I think there was one island we talked about. Oh, it might be the island that um, Alcatraz is built upon. The local tribes were like 
very afraid of it oh, and yes. thought it had a negative energy. You're right. But it makes me wonder if they, the tribes here in New Zealand also felt the same way because if it was such a great place to harvest kind of necessities in their lives, mm-hmm. you would think maybe they would live there, but they specifically chose not to. It was very intentional. Then... In 1842, or like around in the 1800s, the European settlers came, and Captain William Maine Smith surveyed the island for potential settlement, and while exploring, he came upon these quail and named it Quail Island. But like I said, not long after that, the quail bird became extinct. But Captain Smith did not propose that they settle on the island because he preferred the safety of the mainland, and so the island remained untouched until... 1851, when three brothers from Ireland decided to live there. Or I guess they didn't really decide, but they basically won the island. So these brothers, Edward, Henry, and Hamilton Ward, arrived in Littleton on December 16th, 1850. And if you want to feel unaccomplished in life, let me tell you about Edward. (sighs) Edward Ward was the oldest brother. He was 25 years old. He was trained in law and was already a magistrate and was prominent among the new settlers and, in 1851, won the ballot for Quail Island. So he and his brothers began to farm and settle on the island. They basically, like, built their own boats. Then they, like, ferried livestock and materials to the island and built their own, like, small cottage by hand. They built it up on the northern slopes of the island that overlooked across the crystal blue waters towards the port. And these brothers were just, like admired and looked highly upon by everyone who lived there because they were just so successful for their young age. And so once settled onto the island, Edward, Henry, and Hamilton found their thing. They supplied dairy products back to the mainland colony and spent their days milking their cows and churning butter and other dairy products. And Edward, our very accomplished 25-year-old friend, was so proud of his produce that he wrote in his journal saying that his butter was the most keenly sought, and he was just so proud of it. Oh, that's, but that's such a good feeling. Like, he's so proud of his work. I know. He works hard for it. Yeah. But, and I'm very sorry to do this to you, this story takes a tragic turn, as do almost every other story that I will tell you about Quail Island, because... There is a curse. Only a month after settling onto Quail Island and having the best butter in the colony, tragedy struck. One day, Edward and Henry, the two eldest brothers, were traveling back to the mainland to procure firewood and the boat capsized. And both men died by drowning. So poor Hamilton, who was 15 years old at the time and the youngest of the brothers, was left alone to grieve his brother's deaths and to manage the island by himself. He spent so many months alone on the island, and the isolation and grief were said to change him. And people on the mainland reported, like, after seeing him after a few months, like, they hardly recognized him. He was a just completely different man, which I don't blame him. And especially living alone on an island, like... Yeah, you're isolated. We've all seen the movie Lighthouse. I feel like we know what happens. I haven't. I need to watch it. It's so bizarre, Corinne. It's so bizarre. It's, uh... Robert Pattinson and can't remember the other guy's name. The Green Goblin. <laughs> I don't know why I'm blanking either. I mean, it, I think just in general, like you need... Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Yeah. You just... These brothers seemed like they were social and, and thrived off of their interactions with others and their successes and were motivated. And to be separated and to be isolated, I'm sure, was detrimental to his mental health. Mm-hmm. And not, not only was Hamilton not the same... 
but the butter that was produced was never quite the same either. Uh, eventually, another brother, Crosby, came from Ireland to help Hamilton, but again, Hamilton kind of seemed never to be the same. Mm. As more and more European settlers traveled to New Zealand, the colonists began to face some new challenges. One particularly more trying was the threat of disease. And I feel like in school, we learned all about the trials and tribulations of like these long sea journeys and how the accommodations were horrible. Yeah, scurvy. And disease just spread and it was like it festered in those environments and kind of thrived. And so it spread so rapidly amongst the crew and all these travelers who were trying to like go to a new place to find new opportunities and new lives and start something exciting. And for the most part, people were not in these spacious personal cabins or Mm -mm. unless you were very wealthy or with like one other person, like you were crammed in there. Yes. So Cholera, scarlet fever, and measles spread viciously throughout the ships. And the settlers of the mainland feared what these ships would bring to the mainland. Like, they spent so much time cultivating this land and trying to make society that the threat of these new people coming and wiping out their entire civilization was a real scare for them. Mm -hmm. And so they resolved to use a nearby island, Rapapa Island, as a place for new settlers to quarantine and be screened for infection before officially migrating to the mainland. But within a few years, that island was unable to keep up with the influx of immigrants, and so they built additional accommodation on Quail Island. There were men's barracks and hospital facilities were built, and immigrants were shuttled through Quail Island before being cleared for the mainland. But so many lives were lost on this island because of the diseases, and so so many people who had spent the months or weeks to months on these long journeys who were looking for a a hopeful, brighter future, never even made it to the mainland Mm. and died on Quail Island. That's devastating. Quail Island is sometimes referred to as the Ellis Island of New Zealand because immigrants all went through there before going to the mainland. I mean, I understand though, right? Like that you want, Mm -hmm. if there weren't any precautions... Although you're quarantining a group of people who may very well spread the disease and then the whole island is sick, whereas they wouldn't have if you just let them go through. There's also just so much nervousness around bringing new infections in, especially if you're if you haven't had a ton of travelers, like you haven't been exposed to certain bacteria. Right. Yeah. I mean, disease, I feel like even now, (laughs) as we know, is a terror and it's it's really scary, especially when you don't know what it is or how to deal with it. I think Leia is trying to tell us about that time. She must have lived then and she wants to tell us what it was like. Maybe. Maybe she died on Quail Island and that's why she's so freaked out about us talking about it right now. So over time, the buildings on Quail Island were no longer necessary just because they were having less immigrants coming in. And so the buildings were left behind and kind of abandoned until the end of World War One, And then they were also again used during the Spanish influenza epidemic in 1907. So again... Quail Island is being used for managing death. And so a lot of people spent their final days on Quail Island, which, I mean, there are definitely worse places to be because the island is beautiful. But if you're looking at the the track record it has now, Mm. this island is, you know, gaining a reputation that's very symbiotic with death. And then in 1906, a man named Will Villain developed strange bumps and patches on his skin 
And after seeing a doctor, he was diagnosed with leprosy and almost immediately became a pariah in society. Oh, no. And again, what we were just saying about how diseases that weren't quite understood, it almost, you know, there's this fear that's baked in. And so leprosy at the time was viewed as a disease of the uncivilized. And so even though Will had spent many years living amongst this community and like was a neighbor to so many of them, he became feared and people were disgusted by him and the society turned on him and in turn exiled him to live at the human quarantine station on quail island in isolation so at this point quail island is completely abandoned no one lives there so they're sending poor will to live there by himself with no contact no human contact and when he gets there will finds like this uh, these accommodations are just so un Kempt and there, I mean, no one should ever live there. And despite being there alone, Will felt a deep dread and sorrow, which he accredited to like the death tolls of the mm. island. And he felt like he wasn't alone. Yeah. And specifically being in that quarantine hospital, like he just felt like it was all accumulated right there. So Will actually built a small cottage and the cottage had a fence built around it. And Will was not allowed to travel beyond the fence. He was quarantined to the very small plot of land and granted visitation from his family and his doctor only a few times, and they had to remain at a distance. Will spent a full 18 months, a year and a half, alone on that island. And as we were saying, when you're in isolation like that, he suffered a terrible depression and he also began to lose his vision. He was essentially sent to the island to die alone. But then in 1908, a second man with leprosy was sent to the island. And then in 1909, a third. And so between 1906 and 1925, 14 men with leprosy were sent to live on Quail Island. And it then was became nicknamed Leper Village. So it was like a leper, leper colony living on Quail Island. Uh, their living conditions were less than ideal and likely inhumane but not to like the psychiatric hospital inhumane, but still, hey, but still not ideal. The people living there, the patients, I almost called them inmates because I feel like that's how they were treated. Right, yeah. Weren't allowed to leave their lodging and were entirely dependent on the very, very little help that was sent to them. So a nurse would come once in a while. They had food delivered to them occasionally, but like it was very scarce and these 14 men basically had a fend for themselves, but they couldn't leave the, the little area. And there were no quails. And there were no Not quails. Like they could eat the bird or eat the eggs. Yeah. On October 20th, 1923, a man named Ivan Skelton died at the age of 25 on Quail Island in the leper colony. And he was the first man to die in Leper Village. And he was buried in a simple grave, one which still remains on the island to this day. And you can visit it. There's a grave marker. And I think like uh, in recent years, in the 2000, early 2000s or something, the government tried to dig up his body for scientific research because they wanted to see like what strains of leprosy there was and if there was any, any information they can gain from his body. But they couldn't, they like dug multiple sites and still could not find his body. So no one really knows where Ooh. his body is Ooh. or where it went. That's mm -hmm. so freaky. Yeah. Sam T. Iringa was brought to the island in 1920 after, unfortunately, no one in his family was willing or able to look at, 
after him after he was diagnosed with leprosy. And upon arrival, he found a rundown colony without a nurse, even though he was promised that there was a nurse there, there were cooks, that he would be living this really nice life just in a quaint island with people who had the same disease that he did. That was not the case. So when he arrived, he tried to rally the other patients to strike in order to get better care. But in the end, he was the only one to strike. And two years later, he died on the island. And his grave site also is unknown. No one knows where he was buried, which is so devastating to think not only were you sent to live in isolation and exiled from society, but then you don't even have a proper burial. That you can, yeah, you can't be found. It makes, yeah, it makes me wonder what actually happened for the burial. Yeah. And then this story actually has a little bit more of a lighthearted tone to it. So there's a man named George Phillips, and he was sent to Leper Village as well. But after some time, George was given a clean bill of health. He was no longer diagnosed with leprosy. He had been cured. But because they had such little understanding of leprosy, the society basically was like, actually, you can't leave. Uh, you need to stay there for 18 more months and have like multiple more te- like negative tests. But you have to stay living with everyone else there. For 18 more months, a full year and a half more. Yeah, that does not make sense. Even though he was given a clean bill of health and and he was furious. Of course he should be. So George decided to take matters into his own hands and literally walked off the island in 1925. What does that mean, walked off? He crossed the mudflats and swam to a bay where he posed as a clergyman with like a different last name. And claimed his car broke down, which I feel like there are some holes in this story because apparently no one questioned the fact that he was soaking wet. I don't know. I feel like he must have like dried up, changed his clothes, spent a couple hours in the woods yeah. and then walked out like, oh, no, my my car. My, car. <laughs> I'm, my clothes are a mess, but that's because I've been was trying to get it going for a while. But it worked. It worked. He got away and no one ever found him. Apparently, he lived another eight years or so and died in 1931 of natural causes having had finally lived a little bit of a normal life. Nine months after George escaped, the remaining patients were moved from Quail Island to another island. And this part's really sad. By that point, Will Villain, the first guy who was sent to the to the island, had spent 19 years of his life quarantined on Quail Island. Oh, He was wow. only 30 years old when he left, too. So that means he spent two-thirds of his life there. At that point, yeah, that that has to shape you. That reminds me of the show Alaskan Bush People. Like, if you live, no, I don't know it. Oh, I mean, it, it's it's not really a, a super great parallel. It's just this family that lives in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, pretty oh. much isolated, and they more recently reentered society. And the kids were raised just within the family in the wilderness, and Whoa. so the like social norms were a bit different than you know, like being Whoa. raised with the rest of the population. That's interesting. Is it a documentary? Docu-series? No, it was on like Discovery or something for years. Oh, okay. Um, Where have I been? Cable, man. (laughs) Too many TV shows. Too many recommendations. (laughs) We just gave like 100 in this episode already. Okay, so another semi-light fact, which does kind of have a sad ending about Quail Island, is that while the one side of the island was being used for the leper colony... The other side was being used to quarantine animals that would then go on exploration trips. So there were tons of huskies, like puppies and dogs and mules and horses frolicking along the island until they were needed to go uh, travel for these infamous sub-Antarctic 
explorations. These explorations led to a lot of discovery, but sadly, many of the explorations led to ill-fated deaths and illnesses for both humans and the animals. But as you can tell, Quail Island was multi-purposed, but one of its more infamous claims to fame is that the island was a navigational hazard to ships, and there have been more than one shipwrecks among the coast of Quail Island, and has now become a graveyard of ships, which is just so eerie to think about. So not only have ships like crashed there and then like just been left and abandoned there because mm-hmm. it's impossible to get them out, but Dan Ah, which is a ship that was built in 1865, set the record for the shortest voyage, only lasting 70 days because it was destroyed in a fire and left a shipwreck at Quail Island in 1899. Then another ship, the Mulog, was... One of the first screw steamer ships, I don't know if you're into into ships, thought I'd put that tidbit of what it is <laughs> in there. I don't know what that is. Um, it was built in 1855 and was declared derelict in derelict in 1916 and was banished like the lepers were to the shores of Quail Island. And so now there were just like tons of ships and like ship skeletons that are just rusting at the shores of Quail Island, which, I mean, from afar is just scary. It's just like a weird yeah, thing. It's a weird sight. Very creepy. Although, I don't know about the the fish that exist off of the coast, but I feel like shipwrecks have really good snorkeling and scuba diving moments. That's true. They are cool to look underwater. Right. right. Yeah. So Quail Island became a recreational reserve in 1975, and then there was a restoration program that has been put into place. And today, about 16,000 people visit the island each year. You can take a boat. It's pretty quick, like a 30-minute boat ride across from the mainland. And students visit for school trips. The last remaining quarantine barrack has been turned into a small museum. And while many of the other buildings don't exist in their original form, replicas have been built. And there are remnants like the grave of Ivan Skelton where his body is not necessarily mm-hmm. in that grave and the many shipwrecks still remain. The island is sometimes used for summer camps and if you know anything about summer camps or if you've ever been to one, kids often come home from them with great ghost stories or maybe the unlucky if you come home with firsthand experiences oh, and are no. traumatized <laughs> and then eventually will email us their stories. I don't know. There are all these kind of small ghost stories that come from Quail Island of children saying that like when they were sleeping there, there were voices in the night and dark shapes of men peering into their tents or shadows kind of flitting through the trees or past their tents at night. And it's it's scary, but not not really, I don't know, evil in intent. Mm. It feels like there are just so many spirits that have died on that island that they're bound to that land and they travel it and they move around it and maybe it's residual or maybe they all still live in their colony in in the afterlife. I don't know necessarily. But these stories spread throughout New Zealand. And so this fear of Quail Island grew and the curse became really well known. And the images of rusting, decaying shipwrecks only added to the ominous reputation of the island. And it is now known as an island of lost souls, those who died trying to seek a new life, those who were banished and sent into exile, and possibly a few pirates or crew of the ships. But aside from the stories and ghost tales from those who spent the night, the island doesn't really have like infamous specific ghosts, you know, like the same way that your hotel does. 
but it has an energy, a sadness and heaviness that can be felt and has been shared among visitors. And today, no one dares to settle on the land for fear of the curse coming after them. But that is Quail Island. Wow. Okay. That is freaky deaky. That It just makes me so sad for yeah. all of those people that were banished to the island. And for to be this island that once had a cheerful, impressive group of brothers living out their passions and making bomb butter for everybody. <laughs> and then it turned into this neglected and diseased island. Yeah. And it, I also am curious about the just like the general composition of the land, like the soil makeup, because mm. with the bodies not with not knowing where they're buried, I'm thinking, okay, well, did they, do we just like general, like in general, not know at all where they're buried or did the body shift? Like, did they kind of like slide Mm. underground or were people just like, it's so much work and we're sick and we're dying and ill and we're just going to throw the body into the ocean? Oh, I I almost, I feel like it was probably the, the first version of that where it's like either the soil has shifted or... Keep in mind, these people were exiled and very few people from the mainland were going to see them. And so no one really knew where exactly it was. And then after the colony was closed, the the buildings were like burnt down because they no longer wanted, they won, they were probably afraid of, is the disease remaining there in the buildings or Mm -hmm. whatnot. And then the stone, the headstone for Ivan was placed after the fact. So maybe it was Mm -hmm. placed in a completely different place just because like they assumed that's where it was. It was just like a memorial marker. Yeah. Rather than actual physical site. Because it's 200 acres. It's not a massive island, but it is Mm -hmm. still to locate the specifics of where that body is. If you might not necessarily know the specifics of where the buildings were would be near impossible. Right. I can't imagine being a kid that's like, yeah, my parents send me to a cursed island for summer <laughs> camp. <laughs> what are you doing this summer? Hags. Hags. Hack us. <laughs> I don't know. Those are cool parents. Send me to a cursed island. <gasps> that should be another children's book. Summer camp at cursed island. At cursed island. I was saying the other day to my boyfriend, because he was a big fan of Baby Witch, I was like, I need to go back and listen to every single episode we've put out and start writing down all of the things that we're like, that's a book that we're going to (laughs) do. I know because we always forget it. We can have our list and maybe we'll actually do some of them. Yeah. No, you know what they should do if they don't already? It would be great if they could do an adult summer camp. You know how they have those where you can- They do. On the island? Oh, not on Quail Island. I thought you were saying like in the world. I was like, of course they have that. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm saying they should do it on Quail Island so you can go party it up, do adult summer camp things on a cursed island. I don't know that I'd want to stay- Even staying one night there scares me. I don't know that I'd want to stay multiple nights. I don't know why this is what I picture, but do you remember the Scooby-Doo movie where they're at that- what is it, like Mystery Island or whatever? Oh, yep. yep that's yep. what I'm picturing. Like you, we get off on the dock and we look up and that is the, that's Ooh, Whale Island. That's scary. Look at pictures though. It's beautiful, like stunning. Okay. I'm going to. I mean, New Zealand is just amazing. And then their response and the, the pandemic and just feel like they're always getting, getting a gold star over there. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's really nice got a nice yeah. little like curve to it mm-hmm. i like it yeah it's pretty the very blue water oh so beautiful there's a little map there's photos of kids i think maybe hiking 
Very interesting. Dog kennels? Those are probably replicas of, of when, of how like the animals that were living on there. Oh, you're right. Wow. Because I don't think the originals of that exist. Oh, I'm, okay. This is actually beautiful. All of the, the fallen uh, boats that are just like I know, half, isn't it cool? They're like skeletons. It's so cool. Yeah, uh-huh. they really are these ribs, these spines. Ooh, the water's beautiful. Okay, I'll go. Okay, let's go. Ignore the curse. Let's go. Yeah. Because we're not there to live. We're there to be tourists. So yes, we'll be exactly. okay. We'll be okay. All right, listener stories. Okay, this is from Dante. Hi, guys. I hope this finds you well. I was hoping to share a story of multiple ghost experiences from when I was living in a house in New Zealand. Yes. It was 2015 and I was living with my best friend. I'll call him Ryan for the sake of privacy. And it was our first time living together. Ryan had the master bedroom and I had a smaller room, more sunnier bedroom. Often he had his sister stay over and she would sleep up in the blow up bed in the lounge. And at the time, everything was pretty normal. That was until Ryan's sister started commenting on the sudden temperature drops in the lounge and saying that she felt someone was watching her. Oh, no. We thought nothing of it because neither of us were experiencing anything at that stage. However, things began to change. One day, I came home from work to find Ryan in his room on edge. I asked him what was wrong, and he said that while he'd been on his computer, he heard the sound of the fridge opening, you know, that distinct sound of the seal pulling as you open the door of an old fridge, and he told me that a few seconds go by before he heard the beep, beep, beep sound it makes when you leave the door open, and then a sudden slam as it closed. Ooh! He was so freaked out that he didn't leave his room until I got home. After that, he moved back home with his parents. So I ended up being, so it ended up just being me living alone there. I stayed in the smaller room because the master room had a strange vibe, like a heavy feeling, not really welcoming. So the master room stayed empty. One day I was walking up the driveway. My kitchen window faces the driveway. And as I was approaching, I could see the faint ghostly shape of what looked like a side profile of an old woman in the kitchen window. She literally slid forward towards where the fridge is located and then reverse slid backwards out of sight. Oh, Oh. God, that's so freaky. I imagine her doing the moonwalk. (laughs) That's a nice version. I was thinking like she just like slingshotted back. (laughs) I convinced myself I was just seeing things, but then I remembered what Ryan told me and it validated his story of hearing the fridge open and beeping because I literally saw her doing it. Whoa. The icing on the cake was when I eventually saw her face to face. No. One night, my mom came to stay. Naturally, as any good son would do, I gave her the bed in my room and I took the couch in the lounge. That night, I could feel the temperature fluctuating, which also validated what Ryan's sister was saying when she slept in the lounge. Mm. I woke up and at the eye level of the couch, an old woman with half of a torso and a head of curly white hair was there staring at me. Oh. I thought that she was kneeling down to look at me. Nope. She was dead ass floating really low to the floor, staring about two feet away from my face. (gasps) Oh my gosh. I could do not. I screamed so high. I reached the pitch of Ariana Grande. (laughs) I quickly yelled at her face. Get the fuck away from me. Which she then abruptly swooped up into the ceiling and disappeared as if she was being sucked into the roof by a giant vacuum. Oh. I lay there for 20 minutes shaking, eventually falling asleep. Luckily, not long after, I moved out of that house and I've never looked back. 
This was the most convincing experience I've ever had. It solidified my belief in ghosts for sure. Yeah. Whenever I retell this to friends, I always find it easier to gesture her movements. So I hope it's not too hard <laughs> for you to visualize her creepiness. Now we get no, it. I visualize it. Yeah. It's very clear. Thank you so much for your time. Have an awesome week, Dante. Okay. Can I just put a really nice spin on this? Because I, it's, and I totally agree and acknowledge that this is terrifying. Waking up to a spirit half floating staring at you face to face is absolutely horrifying, regardless of if it's a good or bad spirit. But to put a good twist on this, there is this Instagram page that I just started following and it is the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Let me just confirm what it's called. Pasta grannies. Pasta grannies. And it is just a bunch of videos of these elderly Italian women making pasta. And I have never felt so at home and it is mesmerizing. They have videos of like these long <gasps> sheets of pasta. Oh, I'm looking at it. Wow. And these really amazing techniques of making the different types of pasta. It's incredible. Highly, highly recommend following it. It just, it, it brings me joy. Anyway, I just imagine this old woman maybe used to live in the house and passed away or lived on the land. I don't know. And always spent time in the kitchen and in the lounge with like hosting family or making food and it's just going through those motions still that's a lovely thought although <laughs> the half torso and hovering really really gets me and then her being like just the quick movement of being of being like sucked up to the ceiling or like sucked backwards away from the fridge it just is a little creepy and I yeah. feel like if she were just a regular old granny going about her life, wouldn't she be a slow-moving ghost? Well, we don't understand how ghosts necessarily function or how their energy works. And maybe she's just – maybe she can only stay visual or, like, in her, like, form for a certain amount of time before her energy gets sucked away. Or, like, you know, I feel like energy moves. Yeah. That's how the, we live and how – wow, I'm, like, not saying this correctly, but, like, Earth is made of energy, right? So, like – Energy is constantly moving, so maybe she just can't control herself. True. I'm get you put a nice spin on it, which is very interesting because normally it's me doing that and <laughs> you go dark. But I'm going to so tell gonna you what I visualized. Okay. So even though Dante said it was half torso, the fact that he said eye to eye when he was laying down on the lounge, this is what I pictured. I pictured a granny floating, like planking. Like full horizontal in the air and her neck craned backwards, like creepy so haunting angle. of Hill House. Staring at him. Yes. Bent neck lady. Be bent neck granny. Okay. That is terrifying to imagine and visualize. But I also imagine like she's curious by him and, and trying to know who he is. And also, I mean, the fact that she was sucked up into like the roof makes me think that she maybe was like going through the floor to like look at him, you know? And it was just like the moment where she was like hovering eye to eye to him is when he woke up and it was kind of like with a shock for both of them. And so she like flew away up through the ceiling because she was scared as yeah, well. Yeah, maybe. Although I'm curious about the the weird vibes in the master. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Which it could just be, she's like, that's that was her room and she's just really projecting yeah. a lot of territorial energy around yeah. her old room. I would be curious to know if there's like, any record of anyone dying there because it might have been her room and maybe she did pass away there. So there, there's just 
a heavier energy. Yeah. I, I want to know if the landlord knows about this. I feel like you'd have to, right? Okay, Dante, give us your landlord's phone number. We will call them. It's going to be a special segment now. Not, we won't mention your name at all. We'll just say, hey, we stayed there one night and we had this experience. I'll put on a fake voice. Hey, uh, I don't know. Hello. She's never, the landlord's never met you. You can do your regular voice. <laughs> Undercover. But it would just be fun to do a voice. <laughs> Don't well, take that away to, from me. You're going to have to put on a Kiwi accent. So that's the, the New Zealand accent. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I cannot do that for the life of me. Oh, I cannot either. Although I, I will say I was very excited because I was watching a video about Quail Island and something that like me and, and Nick and the, the compound people I live with say often is like, we'll say a word and then as, so like spooky as or yeah. funny as or sweet as. Sweet as. And we always just thought that like, we were like, oh, that's not like a correct way to say anything. But then in the video I watched today, I think it's a New Zealand thing to do. It is. It is. Oh my gosh. So I'm so educated and... <laughs> I have so much knowledge of the world. I don't know if it's, I have no idea if it's as after everything, but I remember when I was there that we kept saying sweet as. Sweet yeah, as. I think that is a common one. The guy in the video said creepy as. I recorded it and sent it to our group text because I was like, we're not crazy. We're cultured. I've heard you say it and I've always just thought that you had picked it up from someone who... Maybe lived over there or had gone over I there. I mean, I'm sure it passed through one of us and that's how we started saying it. I don't know. <laughs> it trickled through. It trickled through. Okay. I have a story from Grace and it's called Ghost Gave Me Laryngitis? Question mark. Hey gals, my name is Grace. I'm 20 years old from New Zealand and I grew up in a very religious household and had many spiritual experiences growing up including a possessed singing Barbie doll, my brother being chased around the living room by a demon, and personally being yanked out of bed by a spirit. Oh my God. <laughs> no matter what house we lived in, I always had varying different experiences growing up. But one experience always stuck with me. It was when I was probably 15. I had been sleeping in the spare room upstairs because I had been feeling a dark presence in my room downstairs. One night, I had a dream that there was a little girl crying and telling everyone how mean I was and turning everyone against me. I felt in my gut that she was evil, and for some reason, in my dream, I looked at her and said, Jesus. She then screamed and flew at me, Ooh. pinning me to the ground, strangling me. I woke up in the morning, freaking out. I went out to the kitchen and my mom asked, what are those marks on your neck? I looked and there were what looked like finger mark bruises all over my neck. Oh, and when I tried to speak, I had no voice. My throat hurt so bad and I went to the doctors and it turns out I got laryngitis overnight. Anyway, maybe I'll send you another one of my stories some other time. I've got lots of spooky pictures too. Thanks for all the work you guys put into the podcast. It makes my walk to uni so much quicker. See you on the other side, Grace. That I'm just picturing. I can hear the shrill shriek of this demon girl. 
in her dream and it is freaking me out. Yeah. Like the visual of it all. I can see it happening. And it terrifies me. I mean, this is why I feel like dreams, there's so much untapped, like, I don't know, energy in dreams. Mm. I mean, the fact that she was having this dream, but it actually was happening because she woke up with finger marks, finger bruises around her neck to the point where she had laryngitis. I know. It's as if your body is almost protecting you by not having you fully awake and having you experience this in a dreamlike form, even though it's like a physical thing. And I wonder why it does that because you would think that your fight or flight, like your, your natural instinct would be to wake up because the predator's after you and you need to defend yourself. But I wonder if there's some sort of knowing when it comes to the paranormal world that your body knows that with sleep Hmm. paralysis or whatever energy and power these entities have that you would have no fighting chance if you're awake so it was better to experience it in a dreamlike state than the sheer panic of being trapped in your body right i also wonder though if it's astral projection in some way like maybe grace had left her body and this was not just a dream it was like an astral plane that she was in But like what happens to you in those planes is still replicated on your physical body. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, no, you make a good point. And that's, I think, the confusion, too, sometimes when it comes to like spiritual meets medicine, right? Because what's the connection between your mind, soul and body? Do we really know the true connection? And it's making me think now of when people get organ transplants and they have Mm. or or parts of someone else's body are are transplanted onto theirs and it comes with all of these other memories like the physical body is representative of the mind of someone else that stuff is so spooky i remember reading a book about like a ya book about it and it was the first time i'd ever heard of anything like that i was so fascinated by that i mean it's kind of like the documentary we're watching tell me who i am with the idea that these like i don't know there's something about like body parts but then also like twins and the fact that he can only remember his twin and it was just like this weird instinctual yes connection that they had between each other there isn't there was it like jessica beale or, or jessica alba or one of the Jessica's that was in that movie that was the eyes one the eyes where she got yeah she got an eye transplant and then suddenly she could see spirits because that person's eyes mm-hmm. were able to Shoot, see what was, that was a good movie it was so I don't remember what it was it was an old one it, I feel like that was like mm-hmm. 2007 and I can't remember okay well this is the episode about movies and documentaries yeah. isn't it you no know, sometimes we have book ones sometimes we have tv movies and then sometimes we haven't done anything at all so We don't have much to say. I think it's literally called The Eye. The Eye? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one being very good. Okay, but it has a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe we don't watch it again because... In the moment, in our youth, it it felt good. Yeah. That's the thing, too, is sometimes I feel like now that we're older watching certain scary movies we we have more of a critical eye for them but when you're younger everything is scary so you're like oh my god that was the scariest movie terrifying yeah yeah well if you're from new zealand or if you have any ghost stories really at all please email them to us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com because we want all of them. And if you want to pick a topic like Anne Louise did, there are specific tiers on our Patreon that will allow you to do so. We are always so excited to see what you guys pick because it's just, it's fun and exciting for us to do research on new paranormal spooky things. You can also rate interview on iTunes, please. And then tell people about us, social media, Facebook group. If you want to get in on all of these, uh, 
documentary discussions that we will try to remember to post because we're wanting to discuss them, (laughs) then join our Facebook group and shout out to Mm -hmm. all of the moderators who manage the group. Thank you. Seriously. I will also say if we forget to start a group discussion about it, please feel free to start it and then tag us in it so we are notified that it's Mm. happening and we'll come join it. Also, someone just posted on our Facebook group a picture. It was a painting of Bigfoot, but it so looks like the Ron Swanson version of Bigfoot. It's hysterical. That's amazing. It's unintentional, but it very much I was thinking that and then I looked under the comments and someone had done a gif of Ron Swanson and I was like, see, I'm not the only one. Oh, love it. Nick Offerman in Bigfoot form. (laughs) And shout out to Brooke Foster and Eric Foster at Upfire Digital. Thank you so much for editing our podcast. We're so appreciative of all the work you put in. Thank you. And we will see you on the other side.